an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo News Radio. Heard with Dave Ross and Colleen O'Brien Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, a replica biplane and the man who built it to honor a monumental around-the-world flight. Actually, uh, it just started out as a pretty good idea, and uh, you know how things get out of hand. And then, from the archives, voices of survivors from the deadly 1972 Vancouver tornado. It was surreal is what it was. It was uh, just kind of looking at it, and all of a sudden, it just looked like the entire school kind of lifted up. And stay tuned for a roundup of exhibits, tours, talks, and other history events happening in the Pacific Northwest with the Never Green Minute. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And it's Friday. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell is here with All Over the Map, a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. A recent mandate from the U.S. Department of the Interior is ordering the rapid removal of 18 derogatory place names from around Washington State. The state committee met yesterday to decide how to comply with this directive, and Felix is here with the update. Good morning. Morning, Dave. Yeah, quick background. Last fall, Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland, she's the first indigenous person to hold that office, declared a particular word for indigenous women used in many place names around the country to be derogatory. The department then put in motion a process to eliminate that word from the federal database of geographic names. Information from the database comes from each state, so changing those names typically involves action by each state. Then, in late February, the Interior Department issued a list of 650 place names in the U.S. that include this derogatory term, including 18 here in Washington, along with recommended replacements for each. Now, this part's a little complicated, but the basic idea from the feds was to keep the term lake or river or creek or whatever but replace the derogatory portion with the name of the nearest named feature. So here's a hypothetical example. Let's say Derogatory Creek flowed into Lake Washington. Uh The name would be changed to Washington Creek. That makes sense. I guess. (laughs) So I spoke with Sarah Palmer yesterday. She works for the state DNR. Uh, She's chair of the Washington State Committee on Geographic Names. That's a group that reviews name change requests. She told me the state committee supports the Department of Interior's effort to eliminate the derogatory term. It's been happening here gradually since the name-changing process in our state is citizen-led. The state just can't change names. But Palmer's committee doesn't like the process I just described. It's too broad brush. It's a blunt way to address a sensitive issue, and it potentially erases history of indigenous women. They also don't like the Department of Interior's very short timeline, which is anyone can submit comments on those proposed name replacements for those 18 places in Washington by April 25th, whether you object or agree or if you have a better idea. It's the better idea part that typically typically takes much longer than two months. Um, Late February to April 25th, that's the deadline that's been given by the Department of Interior, And by better names, I mean more historically and culturally appropriate. Um, When it's not a federal mandate like this, the state committee typically takes at least a year to carefully review these individual name chains that are proposed by citizens or tribes. DNR wants names that reflect the long and diverse history of what's now the Evergreen State, which is to say a hypothetical swap to Washington Creek might not be the best choice, right? Mm -hmm. So the committee met yesterday, and they finalized a letter that they then sent to the Department of Interior letter lays out all these concerns, asks for more time beyond April 25th to allow the people of Washington to participate in proposing new and more appropriate names. I reached out to Interior yesterday uh, to get their reaction, but I haven't heard back. Sarah Palmer, she told me she doesn't expect to hear anything until early summer. 
So one possible scenario is that the Department of Interior ignores the letter from Washington and goes ahead and changes those 18 names to those proximity-based generic names. Now, Sarah Palmer says if that happens, the committee here will consider those choices to be um, what she's calling placeholder names. Even if the feds do that, we can still come back if we get help from the public, if we get help from tribes and historical societies and concerned citizens, and we can go ahead and we can change them again, and we can make sure that we preserve our history and that we continue that reflection. And I think I think that really was more the Secretary's intent with putting this order forward. Um, but, yes, yeah, sometimes the mechanics on these things can be complicated. Yeah, so it's far from over. I'll be curious to see if I actually hear back from the Department of Interior today with a reaction. Um, in the meantime, anyone can submit comments on the process to the Department of Interior We'll have links at My Northwest. Everybody here has the same intention, but just the timing is very different from the federal perspective versus this perspective here in Washington State. So anybody has a better idea, can go to your webpage on My Northwest, and there's a link there that'll yep. tell them where to submit their idea. Exactly. Felix Spinell. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Whether we travel by water, land, or air, we are thrilled by the scenic grandeur of the evergreen state. Off we go into the wild blue yonder, climbing high into the sun. It was 98 years ago today when a quartet of Army biplanes took off from what's now Magnuson Park on a first-of-its-kind around-the-world flight. And our resident historian Felix Spinell caught up with a local man who is planning a recreation in a replica that he built himself. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Dave. I had an exciting day yesterday in a hangar at Chehala Centralia Airport. We'll get to that in a moment. First of all, Dave, have you ever seen the monument right out in front of the main entrance to Magnuson Park with the wings on it? Uh, yes, because I, uh, I've been there several times. Is it an actual plane or what is it? No, it's a little sort of like a little pylon with these sort of uh, probably bronze wings. It's hard to get to on foot. It's right by the highway. It commemorates the 1924 around-the-world flight that left from Sandpoint 98 years ago today. That was before it was a naval air station, but when a very young Boeing company was assembling aircraft there, using a runway, and using Lake Washington for seaplanes. Now, Bob Dempster is 76 and lives in Centralia. Decades ago, he used to ride his bike right past that monument without giving it a second thought. His dad was a commercial pilot, and Bob also learned to fly. He'd first heard about the -the around-the-world flight when he was a kid back in the 50s. Then in the 1990s, Bob and his wife Diane flew a modern small plane around the world, which is a pretty amazing feat on its own. And somehow or other, maybe call the kind of al- call it alchemy or all the facts and experiences coalesce into a bigger and more historic quest beginning back in 2000. Well, the quest. Um, actually, uh, it just started out as a pretty good idea. And uh, you know how things get out of hand. And so 22 years later, here we are. Uh, the idea was to build a reproduction of the Douglas World Cruiser, the first airplane to fly around the world in 1924 from Seattle. And so we've built a uh, reproduction of the uh, command ship, which was the Seattle. So they had four airplanes, and they were the Seattle, uh, the Chicago, the Boston, and the New Orleans. And so they were christened at Sandpoint. Now, these were four Douglas planes. They weren't Boeing. They were built in Santa Monica by Douglas, the company that Boeing eventually would take over in the 1990s. Back in the 20s, Boeing engineers helped get those Douglas planes ready for the flight. If there was competition, it was friendly. You know, Bill Boeing and Donald Douglas were both personally involved. The planes took off on April 6, 1924, and returned to Seattle in late September. So fast forward to the 21st century, and then Bob and Diane Douglas built a replica that they called the Seattle II. That's actually the sound of its 12-cylinder oh. engine in operation. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great sound. Um, 
It first flew about a decade ago and underwent about 40 hours of test flights with an official test pilot and everything because it's, it's officially considered an experimental aircraft. It had its formal debut, sort of its, uh, its, its coming out back in 2016 for the Boeing Centennial when Diane Dempster rode along with a test pilot and they actually circled the Space Needle. It was, it was like two icons meeting, you know, uh, the... The, and I can. I was thinking when we were going around, I wonder what the people in the Space Needle are thinking. Are they running or are they going to the window or are they running away from the window? Because, you know, here's this strange airplane circling them. Here's a quick, a quick few numbers. The plane represents about a million dollars in time and materials, all told. It's 35 feet long with a 50-foot wingspan, cruises at about 72 miles per hour, and typically flies just a few thousand feet off the ground. It can carry 450 gallons of aviation gas, which gives it roughly eight hours of flying time. So though it's been delayed by the pandemic, like so many things, of course, if all goes according to plan, the next big part of the project will begin exactly one year from today. Next year, on April 6th, would be the 99th, uh, we're shooting for leaving Seattle on floats like the original flight. Um, And what they did was they flew up to Alaska and around to Japan and uh, Shanghai and around to Calcutta. And then they changed the wheels across the Indian, the Middle East to England, floats again for the hop across the top to Boston, wheels back to Seattle. So that's what, and we expect to do the same, uh, same flight. Well, not exactly the same flight, let's hope, because, spoiler alert, the original Seattle crashed early in the trip up in the Aleutian Uh-oh. Islands uh, in Alaska. <laughs> now, the pilot, Major Frederick L. Martin, and the mechanic, Sergeant Alva Harvey, they survived. But the plane was destroyed and out in the wilderness, and it took them about 10 days to hike out. That's an amazing story on its own. And that original 1924 trip was covered by famous journalist Lowell Thomas. Um, Thomas's son, also named Lowell, settled in Alaska back in the 50s. In 1967, he led an expedition to recover the wreckage of the lost plane. And he recovered the steering wheel, which he gave to his father as a memento because he was so involved with all the pilots in the original flight. And uh, later on, I... I met with Lowell and told him what I was doing, and he gave me the original steering wheel. So when we fly around the world, I will have on my hands the original steering wheel for the Seattle. So I've got some DNA uh, that's going with us on that flight. So, yeah, it's kind of like picking up the fumbled football and running downfield. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> You know, he keeps that uh, steering wheel under his pillow, Bob told me. Um, yeah. Now, artifacts are powerful. There's no denying that. Places are, too. Pretty much almost every story I do is about power, place, you know, artifacts and place. Bob's even visited the Alaska crash site himself. In fact, you know, he saw in the tundra where the original Seattle had made a big, long scraping mark. And something like 80 years later when he was there, the land hadn't healed. And while he was there, he, felt, he knelt down and felt something sharp. He dug down, pulled out a piece of the Seattle he immediately recognized as the throttle quadrant, an important piece of a mechanism that would have been used by that pilot, Frederick Martin. And that's what I was holding in my hand. <clears throat> it's, <laughs> it's still an emotional moment <laughs> to be able to, you know, have that in my hand. Yeah, I really like Bob and Diane. They're my kind of people. Um, but, you know, why do this flight in 2023? Uh, the reasons are similar, Bob says, to what General Mason M. Patrick, the guy in charge 100 years ago, said the reasons were to do that original flight back in 1924. Since the United States um, was the first to fly, we should be the first to fly around the world. So there's a little nationalism, you know, manifest destiny, you know, going on there. But I think it really um, illustrated 
the idea that uh, you know man is a kind of a restless beast and he wants to know and so you know uh, what is over the horizon uh, you know that's just not you know uh, a dreaming goal that is what we do that's why we go to Mars and everything else and um, so we're explorers by nature yeah, I mean, you can say the same thing about Bob and Diane. Only one visual difference. They added the, the words Thunder Canoe under where it says Seattle 2 on the engine cover. And Thunder Canoe is in Lachutzi. That's what a descendant of Chief Seattle, Ken Workman, that's what he christened the plane, Thunder Canoe, because they didn't have airplanes, of course, 200 years ago. But anyway, it's, it's cool to see that up on the cowling of the aircraft. They're still raising money. I think that flight next year will cost something like $450,000. We'll have links to contribute at My Northwest at also at seattleworldcruiser.org. So just a really interesting, cool couple, and let's wish them the best of luck one year from today when they take off on their around-the-world flight. Wow. That's 72 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Takes <Wow>. a while. <laughs> Felix Spinell. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. All of Felix's reports are at mynorthwest.com. For this is Cairo where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, a deadly tornado struck Vancouver, Washington in April 1972. This is Robert, Mr. Powell. Tornado about a mile east of the Winton Pumping Station, moving fast your way, northeast. Yes, the bottom is touching the ground. We don't think of this area's tornado country, but it was exactly 45 years ago, April 5th, 1972, that an especially devastating tornado touched down in Vancouver, Washington. Joining us now is our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, with the stories of some of those survivors. Felix is brought to us by the King County Library System. Yeah, you know, tornadoes are rare in Washington. We had one last week in Monroe, of course, and um, they do, when they do happen, they can be very deadly. I want to thank uh, Ted Beener of the National Weather Service for alerting me to this story and helping me track down some of the people we're going to hear from. It was 45 years ago today, an EF3 tornado, that means winds of 150 miles per hour, hit Vancouver, Washington around 1 p.m., Five people were killed by falling debris at a shopping center, and then the tornado headed north toward a cluster of schools. Kevin Wood was a junior at Fort Vancouver High School. Go Trappers! Um, as the sky darkened, he and a friend were on a stairwell landing looking right across the field at the grade school next door. I was a student at Fort Vancouver High School. I was a junior that year that it happened, and we were looking um, straight east right at uh, an elementary school there, Peter S. Ogden, and it was just... Pretty, it was surreal is what it was. It was uh, just kind of looking at it, and all of a sudden, it just looked like the entire school kind of lifted up into the air and then just kind of imploded within itself. Yeah. Now, inside the Ogden School was 7-year-old Curtis Johnson. He also saw the sky dark, and he heard the pounding of large hail, and he had a more up-close and personal experience with the tornado. And I don't know if the teacher said duck or really knew what was going on, but I remember kind of getting under my desk and then just, you know, in a blink of an eye, kind of looking out from underneath the desk or coming out from underneath the desk. The roof was gone. Yeah, the whole top of the, the our classroom was blown off. You know, I think everybody was kind of running around. They were trying to gather us kids up. For some reason, I decided I was going to, we didn't live that far away. I decided I was going to go home. So I started walking towards home. So as Curtis Johnson's heading home, Kevin Wood and several of his friends from Fort Vancouver High School, they head across a field toward the Ogden School to help out. We were uh, one of several of the first ones over there. Some of the things I still really stick in my mind, seeing a kid's jacket wrapped around a uh, basketball hoop, 
and then just a pile of uh, brick and rubble kind of going through, kind of looking, and just seeing, you know, some, like, little hands sticking out from under uh, piles of brick and everything, and then just going through with other students and everything and just, you know, pulling kids out from under this stuff. So pretty horrific disaster scene. Nobody actually died at, at Peter Ogden School, amazingly. As Curtis Johnson's walking home, uh, a Samaritan pulls over and takes him to a hospital. His mom goes to the school, can't find him there. They don't. His parents don't find him for several hours at the hospital where he's okay. And they, they were all pretty traumatized, but they got over it pretty quickly. Um, you know, then the tornado kept moving north and killed another person at a bowling alley. So six people died. That year, Washington led the country in tornado deaths. Really wow. bizarre. Yeah, very strange. Did they ever analyze what conditions led to it and if it can happen again? Well, it can certainly happen again. April is tornado month, as Ted Beener will tell you. It's the uh, unstable air, and we get severe weather here all the time, thunderstorms. Well, the Columbia, I mean, the Columbia Gorge area is certainly notorious for the winds. That's why there are all those windmills down there. Yeah, you know, it's a stark difference between cold and warm air, and it creates the updrafts and the thunderstorms. It's thunderstorms that spawn tornadoes, and that's what happened in, in, on April 1972, and it moved north, and we had high winds here in Seattle, and there were uh, funnel clouds sighted uh, west of Spokane. It was a really dark weather day on that day 45 years ago. Does Ted Beter have any of the same tools like they do in the Midwest to detect, okay, a tornado is imminent? They do have radar. They didn't. They didn't have forty five years ago. They have much more. But we don't have the. We don't have the infrastructure here to warn people. People aren't thinking about right. tornadoes. We if you saw sirens. a funnel cloud, I wouldn't. It wouldn't well, we have, register for me. They, they could use the Lahar sirens, couldn't they? If they had to. I mean, there are some places that uh, have those wired up, but we don't have a tornado siren system here. Like yeah, we because it's so rare when it happens. Yeah, I've been in one. You know, we oh, like, yeah. worked really? in Atlanta for four and a half oh, years, yeah. and they had one that uh, raced across uh, Atlanta, knocked the columns out from the governor's mansion. Whoa. And of course, back then, being young and invulnerable, they they sent me out in it. And I saw <laughs> phone poles snapping and crackling, and uh, natural gas leaks. It was all very exciting, and because I had my walkie-talkie, I felt invulnerable. Did you say this is London? Did you think you're Ed Murrow for a second there? Um, I knew where I was at least, <laughs> Felix. <so. laughs> Things are swinging in Seattle. Things are swinging in Seattle. It's the place for me. Now for the Nevergreen Minute, a roundup of exhibits, tours, talks, and other history events happening around the Pacific Northwest. First up, at Mopop in Seattle, $3 Bill Cinema is the featured presenter in the current edition of Matinee Takeover. Films chosen by $3 Bill will screen at 12 noon and 2.30 p.m. every day Mopop is open from now through June. More info at mopop.org. Next up, Mohai presents the next installment of its History Cafe this time about expanding what is worth preserving and addressing long-standing inequities through historic preservation on Wednesday, April 20th at 6.30 p.m. More info at mohai.org. And finally, on Friday, April 22nd, from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m., the Perkins House of the Whitman County Historical Society in Colfax will host the Columbia Basin chapter of the Model A Club of America. More info at whitmancountyhistoricalsociety.org. We'll have more Northwest history happenings on next week's edition of the Nevergreen Minute. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo News Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at mynorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. And it is with this thought that we most reluctantly conclude our glimpses of Washington State. Yeah, it's kind of like...
picking up the fumbled football and running downfield. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little bit.